TGIM Team RE. This is episode 298. So I had to set up some very clear boundaries and things that I hadn't done in the past to make sure that this time was going to be different. Feliz Lunes. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. As you can tell, I added a little Spanish into the intro because we do have a fellow Latina as a guest today. So I am very excited. On today's podcast, we've got Carla. Carla took her last drink on December 31st, 2018, and she is from San Francisco, California. Before we get going, I want to give Aaron a quick shout out. Aaron was interviewed by Paul for episode 264 of the podcast, and Aaron reached out to Paul and let him know that he recently hit one year sober. Congrats, Aaron. We love hearing back from our guests, and we are so happy for you. Keep rocking it. I also wanted to mention that I am extremely grateful for everyone who participated at our virtual regionals event last month. I'm still on a pink cloud over that event. It was a blast and I loved seeing some of you. Our Recovery Elevator team is working hard to organize and plan a fun events calendar for 2021. We are really hoping that retreats can come back online as well as sober travel and we are looking forward to more in-person meetups. Stay tuned for more updates here on our newsletter and on our website. Alrighty. Let's work on finding your better you. I read something by one of my favorite authors in recovery, Melody Beattie, the other day, and I knew I wanted to share here. The passage I bumped into was talking about having the courage to be ourselves, to understand that we don't have to change in order to be good enough. We are worthy no matter what. What stood out to me most about this passage was the concept of being a chameleon, of adapting to different people and different circumstances a lot of the times in life and just exploring and analyzing how we become malleable in order to fit in. Immediately, I just think of movies and how we see this played out in films with teenagers navigating through high school, putting on this facade and trying to be part of the cool crowd or like the people who play football and the cheerleaders, like all of these roles. What is not seen on movies as often, though, is this same dynamic within adult environments. And it happens in real life. Many of us do it all the time. We do it at work. We do it at social gatherings. We do it when we visit our family. The bottom line is that it's very vulnerable to show up as ourselves, even when we are grownups, especially when we are grownups. The fear of not being accepted shows up for many people. And many times, this is when we use alcohol to relax ourselves out of this fear. It's almost like a catalyst. We drink and easily become this chameleon that can adapt to any environment. Or at least that's how it appears on the outside. Because the struggle sometimes is very real internally. Melody Beattie says, What would happen if we let go of our camouflage of adaptation? What would happen if we owned our power to be ourselves? Would people still like us? Would they go away? Would they become angry? 
There comes a time when we become willing and ready to take that risk, to continue to grow, to continue to live with ourselves. We must liberate ourselves. I'm going to say that last sentence again. We must liberate ourselves. I think that oftentimes this readiness and willingness to take this risk to be ourselves comes hand in hand with entering recovery. Our journeys are all very different and we all march at our own pace, but I truly believe that the more we walk on this path of recovery and pursue a life without alcohol, the more confidence we gain towards liberating ourselves, as she says. With time away from alcohol grows a humble confidence that we can simply show up as we are. This confidence also helps us set boundaries and understand that our worth is not part of a transaction. It's its own bank account with a super protected vault that nobody can ever touch. I remember choosing this path of sobriety and being worried about dynamics with people, worried about relationships, worried about friendships. Will I be loved and accepted as a sober one? Will I stop fitting in? Talk about feeling like a kid in high school again. What's neat to witness, though, is that many times we've actually outgrown some of these things in life. And we can only get that awareness by choosing to be on this journey. There's grief when we outgrow things, but this is more than okay. This is change. Trust that everything in your life is rigged in your favor. And there is no going wrong when you are honoring yourself and your power. There's only one you. Let's go get him, guys. All right. Eso es todo. That's my weekly dose of rambles on RE for this episode. And before we hear from Carla, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive and loving community. And you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or are simply sober curious, you'll get both of these on Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. What is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19, you get access to the community, Get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Another portion goes to in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use a promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you there. Carla, ¿cómo estás? How are you? I'm so good. Hi, Odette. Hi, I'm really happy to have Carla here, guys, because her and I are both Latinas, and it just feels a little bit extra special to have someone who understands that part of me on here with me. So thanks, Carla. Yeah, and I love that you say that because it's, not to say that someone who's not a Latina, like their story doesn't resonate, but there's something to be said about that cultural understanding, sort of the things that we don't know exactly how to explain. It just feels like very comforting, like a hug. Yes, and I could use a hug. I miss hugs, guys. 
All right. And let's get right to it, Carla. When was the last time you had a drink? My last drink was on 12-31-2018, so New Year's Eve. Coming up on two years. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Can you give listeners a little background and let us know where you're from? What do you do for a living? What are your hobbies? And what do you like to do for fun, Carla? So I am in San Francisco. I've been living here for seven years, but I'm originally from the suburbs of LA. So I'm a SoCal girl at heart. I'm an executive assistant. I work um, at a tech company here in the Bay Area. What else am I supposed to answer? Oh, I'm 33. I'm engaged to my partner of six years. And for fun, we recently got a dog. And so that's been so much fun taking him to the park and just watching him play with other dogs. Is, it just warms my heart. I, I just... It just makes me so excited to watch him. And then I've just been doing a couple like personal projects of mine. Um, I started working on a project called Sober IRL, and that's helping other women find in real life connection to other sober women in the Bay Area. I love that. Community is so important. And I do want to say you failed to mention one very important thing about you, which is you love dancing and you are a <laughs> dancing queen. <laughs> Yes, it is just so such a part of my being that I forget to talk about it sometimes. <laughs> uh, you guys, Carla was on the Recovery Happy Hour podcast a few weeks ago with our friend Trisha, and they are just dancing queens. And I've been privileged enough to be in the same room as both of them and dance with them. And it's just such a neat way to just move energies like I'm a big believer of motion creates emotion. And I love seeing you share that with you with the world, Carla, and like post your videos on Instagram and just dance like there's like nobody's watching and like everybody's watching now. So I love that about you. Keep dancing. Never stop. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And I highly recommend it for anyone. Put on one song, make it a good one and just dance. And then it, you feel lighter. Like, I love that you say that that motion creates emotion. Yes, it just helps sort of shake off any bad feelings and brings you a little bit of clarity to figure out, okay, now I'm ready. I've, I've released whatever bad stuff I had in my mind. Now I can move forward. It totally makes, makes it different. And we're so, we're so lucky enough that we have bodies that are, that are able and that we can move them. So I'm really happy that we're talking about this year for a minute and give listeners some background on your history with drinking, Carla. When did you start? When did you realize alcohol was an issue? And just tell me your story. Yeah. So I started drinking when I was 19. It's funny. Sometimes when I say that, people think that it's, I was a little bit of a late bloomer when I started drinking because I didn't drink through high school. And that was something that I was really, really proud of. And then I got to college and I studied abroad in Brighton. It's about two hours south of London. And I was about halfway through my summer abroad program. I had not made any friends. And so that was like the easy connection was, you know, go to a pub. And then I met some other American students. And I basically just followed along with how they drank, which was just like sort of typical college binge drinking behavior. And that became sort of the fast track to, you know, what the next 10 years of my life would look like. And so my drinking, I would say I was just a very, very much a weekend warrior, binge drinker, partying on the weekend, and then, you know, try to recover as much as possible on Sunday and then go to work and kind of be a normal nine to five type of person from there. 
Yeah, I've mentioned this before. It's almost like this chapter in college where a lot of people, our society and the narratives around this chapter in people's lives, like that is almost like a rite of passage, like party like there's no tomorrow on the weekends and have this college experience and then hopefully get your shit together during the week to actually get a degree and finish school. But you are just living for the weekend and living for that party. And it's so normalized. Yes, I really didn't feel like I had another option, to be honest. I knew I had that option in high school and I chose to not drink. But in college, it was the amount of pressure and the normalization of that weekend warrior vibe was just too strong. Like I couldn't I couldn't resist it. And that became my life was, you know, waking up on a Monday, feeling sick, feeling hungover you know, maybe a happy hour on a Wednesday or a Thursday. And then once it was like Friday after work, like it's on, like everyone knew, you know, we're going to meet at this spot or so-and-so's house and just party. So that became, that became my life. I mean, that's like such an easy way to explain it. It all just became, um, binge drinking Monday through Thursday. Didn't really, didn't really matter. Listeners, Carla is also a very petite woman, so I can just the thought of you I I have never seen you drinking because I met you through this journey but I I mean I'm sure people around you were drinking a ton like did you did you feel like you got wasted pretty fast or how was that weekend experience could you like make it through the whole weekend standing and strong no (laughs) (laughs) no yes I mean that's it never occurred to me. It wasn't until I got sober that I realized I was drinking as if I was a, an average height woman, you know, and, and I hung out with a lot of boys too, a lot of frat boys. And so my drinking was up there and, you know, to a point I built a tolerance and I was able to drink a lot sort of for my like size height ratio. But um, I think that really made a difference in just how you know, how quickly I think I noticed it became a problem because by the time I was 21, I already knew I had a problem. It, it was just very evident because I was blacking out. I, you know, or just having a brownout where I, like a part of the night was gone, but then I would come to sort of as things are winding down. And so that, that was difficult because you know, you wake up the next day and, you know, everyone's sort of on a chat thread and catching up about, about the night. And, everyone is talking about blackouts in sort of a funny way. It was very normalized of like, oh yeah, do you remember when you got up on that table and danced and the security guard came and I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> you know, and, and then I would have parts of nights for other friends that they couldn't remember. And so this was just like looking back on it, it brings me a lot of sadness and just it makes me feel, you know, worried about how I was living my life. But with the circle that I was running, this was very normal. This was not anything strange in our world. And all of this is happening at the same time while I'm actually going to grad school. So I graduate college, I go to grad school, I start working in in public education, and I'm still able to operate at a high level. I'm, I'm very much a high functioning person. I'm a high achiever, like very motivated. And so as motivated I, as I was in my career is like how motivated I was to party, like work hard, play harder was sort of the motto of our group. 
Well, yeah, I know you've shared before and you and you said it earlier that you knew you had a problem by age 21. But I guess it had to be such a like an inner conflict of like Carla versus Carla because you knew it was a problem, but you knew that as sad as it is for you to look back now, it was kind of keeping you connected to these people. So it was like a driver for connection, obviously not a healthy driver for connection. And we can see that in hindsight, but at the same time, internally, you're like, oh shit, like something's not right. So that had to be like an inner struggle for you. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I love that how you say that, Carla versus Carla, because that's really how it was, because there was this image of of who I was, especially when it came to, you know, in relationship to my family and to my success as, as a person, there was that image and the juxtaposition with who I was as a party girl was so different. That was someone who, you know, had very little care for herself, had very, you know, just didn't have very high standards. You know, I hung out with a lot of mediocre people, And I, but I was okay with that, you know, but I, but I knew that I was different. And so, yeah, that, that push and pull between these two parts of me. And I couldn't imagine my life without drinking because I definitely had weekends where I'd wake up and I'd say never again, I'm never doing this again. I need to moderate. I need to get myself in check. You know, I was, I was one of those people that was you know, looking at Google at the middle of the night, you know, how do I know if I have a drinking problem or how to, how to moderate, you know, I was looking for all those things, but once the weekend came and you're back in that same crew of people who are egging you on, you know, my name was crazy Carla, like, Oh, when's crazy Carla going to come out? And that, that kept me in the same cycle over and over. And it really, you know, I, I would try to stop and I would try to moderate for the next few years of my life. And those moments where I would try to moderate were probably the nights that things got even more out of control for me. So talk to me about what happened. How does, did this progress? Were you stuck in this cycle for a long time? Or how did you get to a point where you got sick and tired of just this, this 2am Googling and this cycle? Well, I tried a couple things. You know, I I did start seeing like a like an alcohol abuse counselor probably around I would say closer to like 25, but you know, the the recommendation was stop drinking. <laughs> and I wasn't ready to do that. I couldn't I couldn't picture my life especially then, you know, in my mid 20s cutting out alcohol because I felt like that was the key to my friends. That was my, my connection to other people. That was where my social life um, revolved around. And so I couldn't do it. And so I stopped going after a few sessions, but then, you know, the, the same cycle would happen. And then there, there definitely was a moment where I got, I got so sick and tired of that cycle and that um, anxiety, that worry, that, you know, that you wake up and you're like gasping, like what happened? How did I get home? So there, there became a point in July of 2019, or I'm sorry, of 2018, where I said, okay, I've tried moderating multiple times and now I have to do this for real. And I was able to get 45 days sober. And I started, um, I started really taking the time to learn more about some other ways of of stopping drinking. And so 
like this is how Tempest Sobriety School came into my life was when I was looking for other options, like other types of programs that were similar to AA. And so I was able to get the 45 days and then my birthday came around and, you know, how could I have a birthday without drinking? And that became another. So from September to December, I started drinking again and had a couple more of those cycles. And then finally, December 31st, um, I was too hungover to go to a New Year's Eve party. And that, especially like with my partner, and that broke my heart that I was so hungover from just a random, you know, sit at home, watch TV and drink some wine. I was too hungover to go with him to a friend's house to celebrate the new year. And that's when I decided, okay, this is, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And I need to stop. I want to go back to what you shared about your therapist, because when when the recommendation was don't drink, of course, like you felt like you weren't ready. I think not just because it was just about giving up the alcohol, but it was about giving up part of your identity, which like if it's like, oh, my God, you can't eat potatoes anymore. I'm sure it would suck. But we would be like, okay, I'll just drop the potatoes. But because it was completely linked to parts of who you were and how like you said, like you felt like you belonged because of it. And that is so hard to kind of flip over and take that leap into not being that person. So uh, I just want to like applaud your bravery because it's really hard when it becomes part of our identity to then be like, oh shit, like this truly isn't serving me anymore, but I don't know who I am on the other side. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't, I couldn't picture a life without it. You know, I, I felt like that was such a strong, you know, life changing decision to say, stop drinking. And it almost feels like and, and this is where I think the training and sort of the narrative in mental health that needs to change when it comes to drinking. It's like just because you know that you have a problem doesn't mean you get to stop right away. You know, and even with my family, the expectation was like, OK, well, you know, this is a problem now. Just stop. and there's so much work behind that and so I really felt confused as to how do I actually do that how do I actually create a life that doesn't include alcohol and that's where I started searching for some more information and and luckily you know the fact that I got sober you know in this time meant that I had access to social media and I had access to seeing how other people were living a life without alcohol like real people and not just sort of the theoretical idea of what it is I could see it in practice and that for me was such a big shift because I didn't know anybody in my life that didn't drink I never I like that wasn't something we talked about in my family. I knew I had some uncles in El Salvador that had, you know, problems with drinking, but I didn't know anyone one my age and two just anyone in general that just didn't drink. Yeah, it's so crazy how this disease is so common and it's still so stigmatized. Like it doesn't make sense to me how it's known that the struggle is real. However, like we we still have so much work to do in terms of how we talk about it, how we address it, how we cure it. Like it's just it seems to not add up, but I feel like it's slowly tipping and I'm hopeful. So, I mean, thanks for sharing that, Carla. Talk to me about the beginning of this journey. I know you had already stringed 45 days. So was it how was it kind of starting over and how was that new year for you? So I think one of the 
biggest differences between those 45 days and then coming up on, you know, what what this like new cycle of sobriety is like for me is I really still had this idea that I was missing out. I still had this idea that I was being punished, that, you know, I kind of felt like a like a toddler, like upset that's being told, you know, you can't have candy for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, I have I really had that mentality. And I think that's why it was so easy for me to then break at my birthday and just say, F it, I'm going to drink. And so for this time, I didn't tell anyone that I restarted my clock. I just, you know, I had been <laughs> had said it so many times to people, to my family, to my partner. I just didn't. I just didn't want to announce it again. And I really wanted to be very, um, just very kind to myself. I, I almost felt like I was shaming and guilting myself and making myself feel bad about not drinking. Um, again, sort of that same idea of like, this is a punishment. This is what you get for mm-hmm. being such a crazy person. And so this time I said, okay, I'm going to be nice to myself. I'm going to be, I'm going to give myself grace. This is going to be difficult. And I feel like that approach for me was so much better. And that I started to surround myself and started really digesting quitlet books, a lot more like social media that was empowering. And finding that community for me was a key difference. But it you know, I had to I had to change my life. I had to get rid of all the alcohol that had been in, in the apartment. I asked my partner, you know, please don't drink in the house right now. You know, if someone comes over and brings alcohol, I need it to go with them when they leave. So I had to set up some very clear boundaries and things that I hadn't done in the past to make sure that this time was going to be different. Boundaries. I love this topic. And it's so important to ask for what we need. And it doesn't come easy to a lot of people, Carla, to be like assertive about like, hey, if someone brings this over, tell them they have to leave with it. Like it's such it's such simple asks. But sometimes we get so overwhelmed when it's our turn to speak up for ourselves. But I love what you said about I decided to be kinder to myself because I I still don't understand what it is about our brain that it's so easy for us to be kind to other people. And we are our most harsh, um, like judgmental critics sometimes. And like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like being kinder to yourself should be the default. But I guess social norms and narratives and comparison and like the world that we live in right now just sets us up for the total opposite. You know, a lot of people even outside of addiction struggle with negative self-talk. I mean, I don't know who doesn't struggle with negative self-talk. It's crazy. Yes. Oh my gosh. The things that I would say to myself, like, you know, are so, you know, almost like disgusting. Like I would never think to talk to another human being the way that I talk to myself. And so there was a lot of unlearning that behavior and, you know, realizing that every thought that I was thinking wasn't necessarily the truth. (laughs) Like that for me to learn that bit of information was eye opening, you know, that I, you know, I can, I can argue for myself in a positive way or in a negative way. And I don't have to necessarily believe either. I can be, I can be like the neutral watcher of the thoughts in my mind So that became such a different way for me to live. And I had to set those boundaries because those were the moments where 
I had tried to, you know, restart the counter and then I would slip was because, you know, my partner would come home and crack open a beer. I'm like, "Mm, that looks good. Let me have one too. (laughs) You know, so it it took a lot of um, trial and error, I'll say, of realizing, okay, when this happens, I end up drinking too. Okay, so I need to change that part of our life. I need to make sure that alcohol is not in the house. You're not that he's not drinking in the house. You know, I, I have I can say no to events and things that I don't feel strong enough for. And I just kept telling myself, this is for right now. This is just for right now. And then I'll reevaluate in a month if the rules and the boundaries can shift. But I had to be very strict from the very beginning. And I'm really glad that I, I did that because it's what has helped me be successful to today. Yeah, you had to be brutally honest because what happened before is probably that you were like you were enabling yourself in a way. And I I was there so many times where, like you said, if someone was doing it around me, oh, okay, that looks good. So I wasn't setting myself up for success because I wasn't being honest with myself. But it sounds like you were ready to do that. And tell me about this piece that you mentioned about the importance of finding community. How did you find your community, Carla? Oh my gosh. Well, first it was all on Instagram. I think one of the first accounts I followed was Holly Whitaker. And I just fell in love with her with her work and her words. And I felt like she was writing about my life, especially because when she got sober, she was in San Francisco. So that for me felt like a game changer. Like she was also working in tech and she had access to like ordering food and wine to be delivered at her house. So for me, that was the first moment that I I heard my story and how I felt. Um, And so then I started looking at you know, what are accounts similar to her? And so that's kind of how I felt like my passive community, I think is, is probably a good way to put it like people that I'm not necessarily interacting with. And so there was that. And then um, through Tempest Sobriety, they do Bridge Club, which is like once a month meetups for um, women and non-binary people. And so I started to go to those. And that was the first time I sat in a room outside of like Al-Anon and outside of AA with other people who were also interested in sort of the style that Holly has for sobriety. And so I met a couple people there, you know, I just remember writing in my, in my journal, like I went to my first bridge club meeting. I haven't made any friends yet, but I'm sure I'll make them if I keep going. Yes. (laughs) You know, and it just felt just so silly, but you know, I knew I had to figure it out. Like I knew I needed, you know, sober friends in my life because people just didn't understand what I was doing. And, you know, what do you mean you have a problem? You're fine. You're like the rest of us. And so that's, that's where it started. I think I was about six months in when I went to my first bridge club meeting. And then eight months in, I went to a recovery elevator retreat. Um, in Bozeman in August. It's um, it, it'll be a year almost since Bozeman. That was so um, much fun. So yes. much fun. Oh my gosh. Like that, that really is where my eyes were opened to the importance of community. So I, and, and making friends that you get to count on, you know, almost on a daily basis that get you, that you don't have to be embarrassed about this part of your life. You know, I, I got to meet Trisha there and I got to meet you there and, you know, to dance and feel free and to laugh and laugh and laugh my butt off 
cheersing LaCroix, you know, crushing cans in a totally different sense of, <laughs> of the word. And I just felt myself really open up. And I thought, this is, this is what I needed. Like, I get to still live a fun, fulfilling life as a sober woman, as a sober human being. And that for me was, was life-changing. I don't, I don't even know what other word to use. Like it just, it completely changed my life to go to this, to this retreat. So correct me if I'm wrong. And Trisha, if she listens to this, she'll remember, but I think you signed up to Bozeman through Recovery Happy Hour because she partnered with us and she was letting people know through the podcast about the retreat. And I think in some portion of the registration, like how did you hear about this or something? We knew that you knew about the retreat through Trisha. So Trisha messaged me and said, hey, I think one of the girls that's one of my listeners is going to be on your flight. Her name is Carla. Look out for her. Maybe you'll see her. Maybe you can say hi. And I just remember like getting on this plane to go to Bozeman and just like looking for you. I'm like, where is she? Where is she? And like I was Instagram following you. So then I, I saw you and I was like, I'm right behind you, like a few seats away. But I was just so happy that you decided to go because your experience was a little bit different than most of the people who attend, who a lot of them already knew each other beforehand. So you were just like, I'm doing this. Yes. Yeah. So I had started listening to Recovery Elevator, but I was listening from the beginning. And so I missed all of the updates on the, the trips that Paul was doing. You know, I didn't hear him talk about the retreat, but I was up to date on Recovery Happy Hour. And so she mentioned it. Um, Trisha mentioned it on her podcast. And so I decided I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to try this out. And if it doesn't work, fine, that's okay. But I, I just felt like I had to do something. And and because I was hesitant, it made me realize like, okay, this is actually something I need to do. <laughs> like this is beyond my comfort zone. So I have to do it. But I didn't Yeah, I didn't realize that people, you know, I didn't realize that recovery elevator had already built such a big community and that every, you know, so many people were already connected through Facebook and had already been at other retreats together. And so it's probably felt, better. It's probably better than you yeah. didn't know all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm so glad I didn't know because that might have changed my mind. <laughs> but it really felt so good about that. It was so good to have you there and you brought so much energy and I just can remember every single dance off that you were leading and it was so, so neat to meet you. And tell me, how do you feel now knowing that you are someone that people follow on Instagram as someone who's an advocate for this movement? Like you are on the other side of like you're on the other side now where like people look up to you so much because you are so raw and so honest and like I said such an advocate for so many of us did you ever imagine that you'd be on the other side of that no <laughs> no 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 I you know to this day sometimes I do things like either on Instagram or a conversation that I'm having and internally I'm like who is that like who is that girl like talking about myself like who is she <laughs> because it feels like such I, I feel like sometimes like such a stranger to myself, because I've pushed myself to do these things, you know, but some, you know, similar to to how we just started was, you know, I didn't really see any Latinas that were sober, or, or at least openly sober on Instagram, I couldn't find them. And so 
that's where I decided I want to share, I want to share my story because I, then I have a little bit of a different perspective, a different lens that I can offer to people. I never intended to share my dancing, (laughs) you know, when like my hair is all crazy and I'm just wearing like, you know, crazy socks and crazy shoes together. But I just felt like that's the people that I followed that did those types of things inspired me so much that I felt like this was my way to repay that and to, to demonstrate that you can still have fun and that you can still just be a normal human being and you just don't drink like that. That doesn't have to be the most like shocking part about who you are. Like I rather people be like, Whoa, she has the guts to (laughs) shake her butt on Instagram and post it, you know? And so I just felt like it was so important. It's what I needed when I was still, you know, embarrassed and ashamed and just so worried about what people would say. And so that's the best way that I can give back. You are changing lives. I'm going to make sure that Kate drops the handle for your Instagram in the show notes so that people can go check out your dance moves, not to send you any more, (laughs) any more fans, but I'm one of them. You always make my day when you're dancing and we still have to have a uh, virtual dance party that I can be a part of because I know you do those sometimes and it looks so much fun. And this week I was talking to you about this at the beginning of, of our conversation when we were on the phone first, but this week you uploaded a very um, raw and like big feelings video as you were sharing about someone in your family who's struggling with alcohol. And what's what keeps standing out to me about your shares is that you do really want to be who you needed because there are so many people who are suffering in silence and that because their life looks put together or good enough or because alcohol doesn't have that bad rep as much as other drugs have it like they are just not getting help and not talking about it and they are really suffering especially during these times of COVID so it's so neat that you just share about that because I do feel like there's such a high percentage of people who fall into that bucket can you talk a little bit more about this yeah and that's the, the, that's the way that I describe myself as like, I was a high functioning, high achieving alcoholic. That's the way that I identify. And what made that barrier for me to reach out for help was because I felt like I'm like, I'm smart. I'm successful. Like, how could I have a problem? And I really felt like delusional in that way. And I lied to myself a lot that the things that I was doing was normal. Um, I started to really push the line in terms of my behaviors. Like I, I started to hide alcohol in the closet, in my underwear drawer. Like I started doing things that, you know, I thought I would never do. And that shame, the guilt, the embarrassment really kept me silent. And so that's where I feel the most passionate about is the people who are like me, who have their life together, who haven't suffered serious health, you know, mental, you know, family problems, like all of those people that, that maybe feel like they're not bad enough, but you know, their lives are not what they want it to be. You know, they're still wasting a lot of time being hung over and not getting to enjoy life the way that they want to, or the way that they think they deserve to. And so with this family, 
family friend of mine. I, I grew up with her. I've known her since I was 13. And once I became of drinking age, we started drinking together at the family parties. And it was fun, you know, because, oh, you, she's got another drinking buddy. And here, let's talk about wine. And, you know, and and so eventually our paths diverged as I moved to, to San Francisco. And so now that she's in the hospital, she's 38, she has cirrhosis. And it's been a very difficult week for me and my family to know that she was drinking so much that she's she's caused a lot of permanent damage to herself and that and that um that it was all hidden mm-hmm. you know it was hidden behind the fact that she's married the fact that she comes from a good family the fact that she had a job that you know she had been at for so long you know and i think a lot of those parts of our life are almost seen you know as a way to say things are not that bad and that's that's where I really want to be vocal and say, you can have all those things and still have a problem with alcohol. You can have all of that and still not know, you know, not not know how to moderate or how to stop. Yeah, I mean, it's proven success doesn't mean happiness or fulfillment. And I feel like being successful and checking all of these boxes of being high functioning, smart and an achiever, uh, it. <laughs> It doesn't make up or rid you from feelings and suffering and pain. So, gosh, I've been thinking about you and your family and her this whole week. And and thanks for sharing and thanks for talking about this. Because I think at some point in your video, you said something like, you know, we we don't make jokes about hard drugs because we know how toxic they are and how they can kill you but yet we see like I don't know if this is exactly what you said but we we joke about like if someone's passed out drunk or whatever and it's like no they could die too you know they could their organs could be severely affected yet we still see it as funny or okay or not as bad yes exactly it that is exactly it and that's what worries me about the the way that things are marketed and the way that things are so normalized in movie and TV like you know someone's passed out and you write on their face with the sharpie like mm-hmm. you know and that's supposed to be like a funny gag in a movie but when you take the time to actually realize like you know does that person have like you know are they are they going to be okay are they going to have trouble breathing you know there's just so many things that can happen um, and especially after binge drinking, you know, uh, with the withdrawal from that is, you know, could be deadly mm-hmm. from withdrawal. And, you know, those are things that we just don't talk about. And that's where I want to be really vocal. This is why I want to recover publicly is to say, you know, to to be able to stop drinking before a serious, serious consequence is a blessing. Like that is... Uh, like to, to, for me to know that I was able to stop before putting myself in the hospital before, you know, putting myself in a position where, you know, people are worried if I'm going to make it or not like that, that is completely possible. It could have been possible. It could have been me, I think is what I keep thinking is mm-hmm. like, that could be me. That could be me. And because, because of all the things that she had that, that show success and, I just want to make it like very clear, like we don't have to 
hit that rock bottom that we see on the TV and the movies and all of that stuff, we can, we have the decision to turn things around and actually not only turn things around, but our life can be so much more fulfilling and happy and joyful than it ever was because of, of removing alcohol from our life. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for all the work you do, my friend. Tell me, do you get any cravings at this point? Not really. Not really. I think it's not so much like a physical craving. I think there's there's still times where, you know, like the way a sunset looks or something and you're out and there's like, you know, that feeling of you're like, oh, that'd be nice to have a glass of wine. And so I definitely still have those moments. Um, they, they don't happen as often as they did maybe in the first year. But it's a it's very much just like a, a fleeting thought. And I just don't entertain it at this point. It's not it's not an option. I'm, I'm a really big fan of NQTD, like never question the decision. Yes. You know? So I don't have to go back and and sort of fantasize about that in my head. I'm just like, well, I already made the decision to not drink. So, all right. Thanks. Thanks for popping in idea. <laughs> yeah. Like bye out go. the window again. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's important too. Like for, for me to have finally heard that from someone else that, that admitted, you know, after X number of years, that, yeah, they still get that idea. And it's not so much about, you know, obliterating that idea from ever happening in your head. It's more about just managing what you do with it. And that for me is really important. Because when I would have those moments before, the idea would come in and then I would I would sit with it and think about it and, you know, kind of think of like, what's the plan? How would I do this? Mm -hmm. And like that just feels very sneaky, you know, and like I may not have drank, but that sneakiness, that sort of um, lying behavior again, like that made it that makes a difference between just allowing the idea to happen being like, all right, not going to do it and move on. Yeah, not not engaging with it, which is a very mindful practice. So I'm really grateful you brought that up. And we've reached the rapid fire round. Carla, if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. What is your go to response when you get to a party and someone offers you a drink? My go to response is no, thanks. (laughs) I love it. That easy, guys. You can just say, I'm good. No, thanks. What's your favorite non-alcoholic beverage? Oh, my gosh. I love me some LaCroix Pampelamousse. It's yes. my favorite flavor. What's a light bulb moment you've had during this journey? Ooh, a light bulb moment. Ah! Oh, my gosh. I can't think. I can't think. You want me to go to the next one? Yes, yeah, go to the next one. Pass. Oh, perfect. <laughs> this one's much easier. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, my gosh. Mint chocolate chip. What would you say to Carla on day one if you could talk to her? I would say I love you and I'm so proud of you. What parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I would just say, you know where alcohol leads you. Like, why not see what, like, get that firsthand experience of what life without alcohol could be like. Yes, just give it a shot. You can always go back. Before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. Oh, <laughs> I love how you've changed this one up a little bit. <laughs> I, I didn't ask Paul for his permission. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, though. Um, you may have to say adios to booze if the DoorDash driver knocks on your door to deliver your wine and you don't remember ordering it. 
I'm so happy that I met you on this path and I'm so happy that you're doing this. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and I can't wait to share this with everybody. Thank you, Odette. Take care. I'll talk to you soon, friend. Terminamos. Gracias, Carla. (laughs) Clearly, I'm very excited to interview a fellow Latina. I haven't been to Mexico that often this year due to COVID. I've actually only gone back once. So I need to get my Spanish in when when I get the chance, guys. Thanks for understanding. (laughs) Very well, team. Thanks for listening. And before I say adios, I want to remind you that you are good enough. It's hard stepping onto the dance floor, but I promise you there's so many of us already dancing and waiting for you with open arms. Embrace your weirdness, your flaws, your struggles. It's all beautiful. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, own your power to be yourself today. Own your power to be yourself today. That's right. I said that twice. I love you guys. <laughs>